You're listening to curated podcasts from the Beyond Infinity radio show, presented by me, Piers Cunningham. And me, John Young. All right. Well, I thought it would be timely to give our listeners a bit of an update on some NASA space missions that we've been following the first one I thought I'd mention is the Mars Exploration Rover Opportunity, that incredibly long-lived rover that landed at Meridi Ani Planum many years ago, back in 2004, and has done so well, but unfortunately hasn't been heard of for a while. This incredible rover has not been heard of since Sol. 5,111. That's 5, over 5,000 Martian days that it's spent roving around, doing science, taking photos, sniffing out uh, rocks, doing little drills and uh, using its spectrometers and other instruments to discover all sorts of amazing wonders about the red planet Mars. Unfortunately, there was a big global dust storm in the middle of 2018 since the height of that dust storm, when it, the skies darkened, possibly a lot of dust fell onto the solar panels, uh, it was anticipated that this, this dust storm was going to affect the rover, so it was commanded to go into a sleep mode, and unfortunately it has not been heard of since that time. So since June the 10th, 2018, uh, there's been no word from the Opportunity rover and its twin, the Spirit rover, has not been heard of for many years. But it, I think it lasted about six or seven years at um, Gusev Crater and did really well. But uh, it also had some issues in the end with uh, wheels and power being generated by those solar panels not being sufficient to keep it going. So the Opportunity rover is at Perseverance Valley in Mer- the uh, Meridiani Planum area of Mars. It travelled an amazing 45.13 kilometres or 28.04 miles. It's been on the surface of Mars for well over 5,300 Martian days. So a bit more about the mission. Uh, The Opportunity rover is one of the pair of uh, robotic geologists uh, about the size of a golf cart that landed on opposite sides of Mars back in January 2004. So they were launched in the middle of 2003. And uh, this kind of the technology was based on Mars Pathfinder um, technology, was kind of like a demonstration technology from 1997. That involved encasing the lander in airbags. So it used some parachutes to start with, uh, and then uh, eventually it um, inflated a bunch of airbags around the outside of the lander of the, the rover. Uh, and actually hit the ground and bounced a few times, I think bounced for maybe a few kilometres, and rolled and bounced, and then finally came to rest. The airbags were deflated, and, and little you know winches dragged them out of the way. The rover then opened up its solar panels, started generating power, uh, and eventually, some after some systems checkouts, the bolts that attached the rover to the lander base, the petals, if you like, with the airbags underneath them, collapsed. The bolts were fired, the rover was released after this sort of complicated origami manoeuvre where the wheels folded out in a very intricate little performance and eventually the, the, the Opportunity rover drove down a ramp on the, the, the lander and began its incredible odyssey in Meridiani Planum. 
So one of the uh, the mission's uh, big scientific goals was to search for and characterise a wide range of rocks and soils for, clue, for clues to past water activity on Mars. The thinking being that if there was water on Mars, there may have been life. So the idea of these rovers was to follow the water, and uh, they did find signs of water existing in ancient Mars. Not anymore. It's a very, very dry, cold desert now. But uh, there is water locked up in uh, the subsurface, particularly at the poles. There's quite a lot of water there. It's a possibility that below the surface, away from that harsh radiation, there's very little atmosphere on Mars. There's very little magnetic field like the Earth has to protect it from solar radiation, interstellar radiation as well, cosmic radiation. It's a harsh uh, radiation environment, so it's, it's unlikely that there's life on the surface, but it's possible that below the surface, perhaps in a cave or in fissures where there may be liquid water still, and it may be that you know, there's a bit of protection from that uh, harsh uh, radiation environment of the surface, that, we, uh, that you know, there could be microbes, for example. So this is something that's going to be... Uh, Quite a difficult thing to to uh, to establish for certain, I would imagine, because it would involve uh, you know getting below the surface quite to a considerable depth, and uh, you'd reckon that that would probably require humans to be there to do that rather than robotic explorers. But who knows? Since they lost contact with the Opportunity rover, they have been attempting to make contact with it by transmitting. A new set of commands, and this is um, as of January the 25th, this was posted to the Mars Exploration Program website. They have been uh, transmitting a new set of commands uh, in an attempt to wake the 15-year-old Martian explorer uh, and get it to contact Earth. The new commands address low likelihood events that could have occurred aboard Opportunity, preventing it from transmitting So the last communication with Earth was received on June the 10th, 2018, uh, and that was as that uh, big dust storm blanketed the entire planet. The engineers back on Earth have not completely given up, although as every day that goes by, the chances of um, getting back in contact with that rover uh, does become a little bit less. According to John Callis, the project manager for Opportunity at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, He says, we have and will continue to use multiple techniques in our attempts to contact the rover. These new command strategies are in addition to the sweep and beep commands we've been transmitting up to the rover since September 2018. Callis went on to say, over the past seven months, we have attempted to contact Opportunity over 600 times. While we've not heard back from the rover and the probability that we ever will is decreasing each day, we plan to continue to pursue every logical solution that could put us back in touch because what a great asset to have on the surface of Mars. It would be a pity to not have exhausted all the possibilities of resuscitating that that rover, but it is believed that you know if the batteries have completely died, if the... Uh, if there was if there was a loss of um, of the heating, the internal heating, which uh, which protects the, some of the more delicate circuitry inside the uh, the rover, if uh, if they've failed, the cold could have damaged not only the battery but also sort of some of the most sensitive instruments and communications devices that they have on board. So um, things are really not looking that great. Uh, the good thing is though, the Curiosity rover 
is doing great guns at Gale Crater. That's a nuclear-powered, much larger, about the size of a uh, sort of compact four-wheel drive, compact SUV. You know, they still have a a presence on the surface of Mars that is driving around and doing great science. So, um, you know, and they also have, obviously, a bunch of orbiters that are doing lots of different things. The Indians have an orbiter. The Europeans have one. NASA has, uh, has several orbiters. So there's science being done from above and also on the ground still at Gale Crater. There's also the InSight mission, which I'm going to come to in a moment. InSight has now been on uh, the surface of Mars for 61 Martian days. Now, InSight landed on November the 26th, 2018. It's a fixed lander. It's not a rover. It's, uh, it, it just, it's landed on three legs. It actually landed using sort of mini jets underneath the uh, the bottom of the lander. Parachute to start with, bit of aero braking, parachute, and then a propulsive landing on the surface of, of Mars. And they wanted a flat area. The whole purpose of InSight is to study the interior of Mars, listen for things like Mars quakes. And to that end, they have a very, very sensitive seismometer that has been deployed, little crane on the top of the car-sized lander uh, has lifted up the seismometer and placed it with cables sort of draped carefully, linking it back to the lander. Uh, it's, it's, it's placed it on the surface. They had to level it out, make it perfectly horizontal. They had little uh, legs underneath the seismometer that were adjusted to get it nice and flat. What I gather is that the, um, the, the science being returned and the sensitivity of that seismometer is, is very impressive and it's all working as it should be. Now there's also a drill which will be deployed from the deck of the lander, again using that same crane. That's yet to happen, but that will actually be able to drill down several metres below the surface with a heat probe and shed more light on the interior of Mars. If you look at the InSight website, just do a Google search for Mars InSight mission and you'll find it. So you can even find a little uh, sort of animated GIF showing that little crane depositing the seismometer very carefully on the surface and they landed in a very flat area which is what they wanted they're not moving around they're not after topography or a big variety of rocks they're looking for a nice smooth uh, sandy flat terrain where they can uh, they can drill down and get uh, that information about the interior of the planet rather than the um, details of the surface at the moment before they sort of get into their full scientific um, you know where all the instruments are deployed and they're, they're um, you know fully operational they are doing uh, various checkouts um, they're making sure that the solar power is, is uh, working which it, it is that was um, the pedals that uh, deliver the solar power that, that capture the rays of the sun and convert it to electricity to power the rover that was done very early on it was vital that that happened properly otherwise the uh, the mission couldn't continue They've been checking out the lander's health indicators. They've been taking uh, lots of images of the surrounding area. They've been studying their new home on the red planet. And as far as routine scientific operations are concerned, uh, they're expected to um, start about two to four weeks after all the instruments have been placed on the surface, so including that heat probe drill, and then they've completed their penetration. Yeah, InSight's a, a fascinating probe. It's it's the same design. The actual lander is the same design as the Mars Phoenix lander, which landed up in the polar region of Mars. And in fact, it basically was on ice. It was sitting on ice. It had a little uh, shovel which and some internal 
you know, mini laboratories, if you like, that analysed what they could scoop up and they did some scraping at the surface and they found that there was ice just below the surface, directly underneath the fixed lander. So the same sort of design as Phoenix is, is, uh, is being used with Mars InSight. But it has some variations. So it's got, instead of using that uh, little shovel to uh, pick up, scoop up samples and then analyse them on board, the Mars InSight mission has that instrument deployment arm to pick up the seismometer to deliver that to the surface. It's called the SEIS instrument. And it also has a cover so that the seismometer itself has been uh, located on the surface or beside the lander. And then there's also a cover it's a wind and thermal shield that's I think that's yet to still be um, placed over the seismometer to protect it uh, and then there's also the uh, the heat flow probe that requires the uh, instrument deployment arm to also lift it off the uh, the deck of the lander and place it on the ground next to the lander Mars InSight has a temperature and has temperature and wind sensors it has cameras it has a, an instrument deployment camera, which is actually on the side of that instrument deployment arm, and that helps them locating where they're placing things because they obviously don't want to put the heat flow probe, for example, too close to the SEIS or that seismometer, which has already been placed but is yet to have its cover put on it. So SEIS, just a little bit more on that, it is going to measure the pulse of Mars measures vibrations caused by the internal activity of Mars to illuminate properties of the crust, mantle, and core. Now, taking Mars temperature, separate, that's that heat probe, that takes Mars temperature to reveal how much heat is flowing out of the deep interior of the planet. And that sheds some information about, you know, what is the core of Mars like? Is it, is it hot, liquid, like in the middle of our Earth, or is it different to that? Why does Mars have a kind of a, um, an inconsistent magnetic field where there's sort of certain areas have stronger magnetic field than others, but generally it's, it's, uh, it has much less of a magnetic field than does the Earth, and hence that very harsh environment on the surface. So great success there, despite the lack of communication for some time and uh, growing concerns about the, the fate of the Opportunity rover. There is still great stuff being done by the Mars InSight mission. And uh, as I mentioned before, there's also a rover at, at Gale Crater that is um, active as well. They did have some issues with their the computer that was running that spacecraft. I think they've switched to a backup computer. A lot of these uh, these, these machines have uh, have inbuilt redundancy and they've been able to make that switch and they're back to uh, being able to use their onboard laboratories so that they can uh, they can drill into the rock, they can uh, take a sample, they can deliver it to their onboard laboratory on uh, Curiosity and then subject that to various forms of um, analysis to find out about composition and that's all working again, which is great news. And look, just the final mission I thought I'd mention today in this uh, sort of space update um, now, this is relating to New Horizons, which went past Pluto some time ago. New Horizons is a remarkable little spacecraft, uh, small, but not much bigger than a washing machine. It's been going for, for nearly 4,800 days since it launched. Uh, it flew past the dwarf planet Pluto, uh, the first spacecraft to do so. And there's a terrific book which I might mention, I'm reading at the moment, I haven't finished it, I might do a bit more of a review uh, in a later podcast. It's called Chasing New Horizons. It's written by the, uh, the principal investigator of the New Horizons mission, a guy called Alan Stern. 
it details just the lengths, the difficulty in getting this thing off the ground, getting NASA to agree to fund it, bringing together all the necessary people, keeping it within budget, keeping it within timelines that it needed to have. It had to do a gravitational assist via Jupiter to get out there in, uh, I think it took nine years after launch to get to Pluto, was one of the fastest spacecraft ever launched, used a very large rocket for the size of the payload. And then with that gravity assist from Jupiter, was able to get out there in, in really a much faster time than was, was anticipated in the early days of developing the, the mission concept. A lot of people talked about it being a 15-year or even more uh, time uh, scale to get out there with multiple gravity assists. Uh, they managed to get out there with that big rocket, one flyby of Jupiter to take some energy from Jupiter and use that to accelerate onto Pluto. So they got there in nine years. It's one of NASA's new frontiers programs, so supposedly faster, better, cheaper than uh, some of these really big flagship missions like the Cassini mission to Saturn, for example, which was a giant spacecraft the size of a bus, bristling with lots of instruments. New Horizons flew by Pluto on July the 14th, 2015, at a close approach distance of 12,500 kilometres, and that was a very successful flyby. It sent back detailed images. They found that far from being a dormant frozen rock, it's a dynamic place, possibly with uh, cryovolcanism, with glaciers, with an atmosphere, with a retinue of moons, and with a kind of a, a sister object. It's like a binary system. Sharon, the um, much smaller moon, but still quite a large object, which is also imaged uh, by New Horizons as it screamed past. New Horizons didn't go into orbit. It uh, didn't have the fuel on board to enable it to slow down to go into orbit. It just kept on going straight past, but did manage to use its, its instruments and uh, spectrometers and cameras to image uh, not only the dwarf planet Pluto, but also its uh, binary, Sharon. They rotate around each other, so there's kind of an invisible point at which they're both spinning around, and then around them uh, are these very small moons, which are various sizes and spin rates and so on. So it was a very exotic system and lived up to all the expectations, and all the scientists, in, in particular Alan Stern, who'd been working on the project and pushing so hard for so many years before he finally got it funded and got the thing built, launched, and then on its way, you know, huge vindication for him that Pluto, you know, should not have been demoted to the status of dwarf planet. That's another another debate. Uh, Alan Stern's pretty adamant that it should be considered a planet because it's such an interesting place. We've discovered more about the Kuiper belt, that outer belt, the th so-called third zone, the inner solar system, the, the gas giant area, so Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and then the outer solar system, the Kuiper belt, including um, the dwarf planet Pluto. What happened recently, which is really what I wanted to uh, focus on now, is the flyby of Ultima Thule. Now, this is a, um, a, a small object that was flown by on January the 1st, 2019. A close approach was 3,500 kilometers. This is a much smaller object than Pluto. I think it's in the order of about 30 kilometers in uh, diameter. And it's kind of two lobes, a bit like a dumbbell. They've got some images back. They're waiting for more science. So one of the ways they got this mission to get out as far as it did in the time that it did was by cutting out as much weight as possible. So to save weight, they actually put a much smaller transmitter on New Horizons. So the data that's been taken in this flyby of Ultima Thule uh, is going to take about a year to get back to us. So they're sending it slowly, 
But given we waited nine years to get out to Pluto and then another few years to get to Ultima Thule after that, you know, what's an extra year to wait to get the full information that was gathered in that very fast flyby? So following the flyby of Ultima Thule, New Horizons is actually going to continue studying the Kuiper Belt until at least 2021. So we've got another two years of um, science from New Horizons. 2021 is is just the limit of the currently funded extended mission. Uh, it may be that it's extended again. If apparently they do have um, propellant left, the spacecraft is all working fine. Uh, everything's nominal, so it's possible that they will locate another object in the Kuiper Belt and use a little bit of that hydrazine fuel that they've got on board to redirect and do another close flyby. And so a third object flown past at very high speed by this, uh, this incredible spacecraft, New Horizons. If you want to find out more about this, check out the New Horizons website. It's pluto.jhuapl.edu is the website, or you can just do a, a Google for New Horizons mission and you'll find it. And I also recommend that book by Alan Stern, the principal investigator it's called Chasing New Horizons. I will give a more detailed review when I've, when I've had a chance to finish reading it. Just a little bit of background about New Horizons. The mission uh, has a budget of about $700 million over 15 years. That was from 2001 to 2016. Built primarily by the Southwest Research Institute and the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. Uh, as I said, the uh, principal investigator is Alan Stern of Southwest Research Institute. Science instruments are operated at a very appropriately named the Clyde Tombaugh Science Operations Center in Boulder, Colorado. Clyde Tombaugh was the American who actually first discovered what at the time was called Planet X back in the 1930s. So that center that, that's uh, operating these science instruments named in honor of the discoverer of Pluto. And I believe the New Horizons spacecraft actually contains a small vessel with some ashes of Clyde Tumbaugh taken out there to honour, you know, very very symbolic that uh, his ashes wound up right out there in the outer solar system and visited the planet that he discovered all those years ago. So the goal of the mission was to understand the formation of the Plutonian system and learn more about the Kuiper belt and the transformation of the early solar system. How did we wind up with these planets and the big gas giants and the, the rocky inner planets? How did all that happen? The mission science objectives included, and these were successful, these were, these were actually achieved, to map the surface, surface competition of Pluto and its binary Charon, characterise the geology and morphology of, of those two objects, characterise the neutral atmosphere of Pluto and its escape rate, search for an atmosphere around Charon, map surface features on Pluto and Charon, search for rings and additional satellites around Pluto, which they did discover several new ones, and conduct similar investigations on one or more Kuiper Belt objects. So all of those tick, 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 incredibly successful, relatively low budget mission, and really great that there is that possibility of it going on to yet another Kuiper Belt object. Thanks for listening. We'd love for you to review us on iTunes. It's a great way to let others know if you've liked our podcast. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Beyond Infinity RPPFM on Facebook or Infinity RPP on Twitter.